Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Solejo has served their time as the San Francisco Chronicle's food critic with the kind of courage, even brazenness, that you want from a critic. Ho said what they wanted to say, even if they knew it would puzzle or infuriate longtime Bay Area food people. Their perspective felt different and new, and the restaurant world was also remade during this trans-pandemic era. Ho is now stepping down as the publication's critic, and we take this opportunity to sit down with them and KQED's Luke Tsai for our latest installment of All You Can Eat. What even is a restaurant anymore? And why do so many of the Bay Area's most celebrated chefs not run restaurants? What's a restaurant critic to do? That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When Solejo started at the San Francisco Chronicle as restaurant critic in 2019, they were widely hailed as exemplifying the sort of next generation of criticism. Ho 86, the star system, turned away from breathless coverage of the glitziest restaurants and brought a social justice lens to their reviews. But a year into Ho's ambitious overhaul, the COVID pandemic hit and the future of the entire restaurant industry was in question. Quote, the moment marked an abrupt transition and what I thought, to be honest, was going to be a pretty straightforward job of eating stuff and writing fun things about it, Ho wrote last week in an article announcing that they were stepping away from the position. All of a sudden, dining out became literally a matter of life and death. The pandemic has eased and now Soleil is done as food critic, moving over to the opinion page to widen their coverage. They'll join us in a few minutes, but first we want to set the table with our own Luke Tsai, who joins us every week for All You Can Eat, our segment dedicated to the Bay Area's food cultures. Welcome, Luke. Thanks so much, Alexis. Talk to me a little bit, Luke, about the kind of evolution of the food critic. I mean, it wasn't like Soleil was the first person to try and shake up food reviews. Talk to me about what that that looks like over the years. Sure. I mean, I think that... You know, I, I I was a restaurant critic earlier in my career, um, and you know this was like circa 2012 to 2017, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know the landscape of food cruises. I mean, you you can talk about sort of um, the most famous uh, sort of practitioners of it. You know, whether you're talking about uh, Jonathan Gold, or whether you're talking about um, the various folks uh, that the New York Times has had in the position. Um, but the landscape of food prison, when I was practicing it um, for much of that time, uh, I was not only the only um, restaurant critic of color uh, that I knew about um, for much of that period. Um, even in terms of just like food writers, like I was one of just a tiny handful of non-white food writers um, for much of that time. Um, that I knew of who actually had like a full-time um, mm-hmm. staff position, you know, who weren't just freelancing. Um, so I think 
if you're talking about restaurant criticism and part of why it was such a big deal when Soleil came on and took that position um, is that it's this field that has for the longest time always been overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male. Um, and so I think that's what you you alluded to, you know, sort of when Soleil took on the position um, kind of, I think it was announced in 2018 and they started in 2019. Um, it was hailed as part of this sort of new wave, you know, this kind of um, changing of the guard. And there were all, a lot of think pieces um, along those lines at that time, because um, around the same time, Patricia Escarcega was hired as the first ever uh, restaurant critic of color that the Los Angeles Times ever had, um, basically inheriting um, uh one half of Jonathan Gold's um, position. Um, and then Tejal Rao um, was appointed the New York Times um, first ever California um, restaurant critic. Um, and so there were three, you know, young sort of progressive minded women of color who were now at these very, very prominent um positions. Um, and then there was a backdrop of everything that was happening at that time. You know, you had the Me Too movement hitting the restaurant world. Um, you had all kinds of, you know, social movement, social unrest. Um, the George Floyd protest was not long after that, you know, the sort of push for racial justice. Um, so I think with that context, um, Soleil was in many ways sort of the perfect person, the perfect critic um, for that moment and to sort of rise to meet um, all of those different things that were happening, um, mm. all those different intersections, including the pandemic, um, which really put uh, much more attention on a lot of the labor issues um, in uh, in the restaurant industry. A lot of the, you know, like the conditions of the workers, you know, all these kinds of things um, that Soleil was not afraid of engaging in, you know, I think previously, um, those were seen as topics that were sort of not, not for, for a critic, they're for the reporters. For right. Exactly. Maybe for a labor reporter, maybe for someone like that. Um, but the critic wouldn't talk about that. And Soleil from day one, um, you know, said that they were going to talk about those things. And that was part of being a critic. Hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned this food landscape that didn't have a lot of writers of color at the kind of prestige positions. But there was also this profusion of food writing at, you know, alt-weeklies, like I'm thinking Gustavo Ariano down at, at OC Weekly. But And really, though, on the web is really where a lot of this stuff exploded. And with people who were kind of in this, like, pro-am category, no? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, and I think, um, you know, what when I first heard about Soleil, uh, they were not a critic. Um, uh, they were not even first and foremost a writer, at least that that I knew of. Um, you know, like Soleil was mostly known um, as one of the voices of this um, podcast called Racist Sandwich, which was this sort of like rabble rousing podcast about food and culture. Um, and so, um, you know, there were a lot of folks uh, who were thinking and talking about this stuff, whether it be um, on smaller blogs, um, whether it be in the alt-weeklies. I mean, I think the, the sort of slow death of the alt-weekly is obviously part of this story mm -hmm. um, at this point, too, in terms of like why there are so much fewer 
um, critics sort of engaging in this work um, today than there were even five or 10 years ago, right? Um, but I think, you know, with Soleil, you know, apart from their identity, you know, like, okay, this was a, a young, you know, queer person of color, like this, 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 those were important things. Um, but what interested me much more than just their identity was just like the pr perspective um, that I knew that they were bringing, even before they started at the Chronicle. You know, I remember one of the first things of Soleil's that I read that sort of felt adjacent to a restaurant review was when there was that whole blow up. Do you remember, Alexis, when Andrew Zimmern um, sort of put his foot in his mouth when he when he sort of declared that he was going to be the one to save the souls of all the people, poor people living in the in the American Midwest who would never had real Chinese food before. And he was going to be the one to sort of bring real Chinese food uh, to the American Midwest with his uh, restaurant chain called Lucky Cricket. And uh, I remember one of the first Soleil pieces that I read was when Soleil went to Lucky Cricket. This was, I think, when they were still based in Minnesota um, and wrote about that experience and mm. the perspective where Soleil was coming from was a perspective that resonated with me and resonated with a lot of other people who come from sort of immigrant backgrounds, mm -hmm. which was like, um, like it was rushed. They were writing about this restaurant and the food, which in in their experience was not very good. Um, but it was also a defense of all those little mom and pop restaurants that already existed mm -hmm. in places like Minnesota. Um, a lot of the Chinese American takeout restaurants that have been much maligned, but now I think a lot of people recognize are also a real expression of like American history and American culture. Um, and it was a defense of all that. And so you know, I think there's a line from that. This was like years ago, but it still <laughs> stuck out to me, like the kicker of that piece. Um, Soleil wrote, say what you will about Panda Express, but at least they seasoned their fried rice. <laughs> and I still remember that line yeah. um, as as like, OK, well, that that is that is harsh, um, but also like, hey, this is a person who's not afraid to say like, hey, Panda Express is actually can be good, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, if you're going to come in and say you're going to do something better, well, you better sort of live up to that promise, right? Um, and so having someone who had that perspective, that kind of point of view, um, come into a place like San Francisco, which, you know, I think we, we can all say, you know, for more than 30 years had a different voice, like the same voice, um, speaking of Michael Bauer, of course, who was the critic at the Chronicle before her, um, uh, having a, a completely different perspective, obviously, mm -hmm. for many, many years, um, to say that that was a changing of the guard um, and uh, and a sort of a breath of fresh air, I think, is not overstating the yeah. point at all. You know, one of our listeners writes in, Luke, to say, the major issue for most people in the world regarding food is having enough. So when the $300 tasting menu is celebrated as a norm, it seems like a level of self-indulgence that borders on the immoral. The best thing about food journalism is opening us up to the rich variety offered in different cultures. Sounds like Susan is possibly a reader of your food coverage uh, at KQED. I, you know, what do we do with fine dining? Maybe this is something we can we can. Uh, talk about a little bit more with Soleil, which comes in. They come in after the break. Um, what do we What do we do with fine dining? 
Yeah, it's it's it is tricky, and I think the pandemic has magnified those kinds of healings, right? Um, and you sort you sort of saw um, um, all kinds of restaurants struggling to stay afloat, you know, and then you saw uh, this particular model of restaurant, uh, fine dining restaurants, that was dependent on having, you know, so many people serving you, you know, at a restaurant to give you this sort of very um, uh, you know, exclusive kind of experience. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll sort of wait for Soleil to kind of weigh in on that, but like, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that there's no place for that kind of experience, but I think that restaurant criticism for a long time has so privileged those kinds of experiences, you know, I think, and certainly in the Bay area, you know, those kinds of upscale dining experiences, mm-hmm. tasting menus, um, restaurants that are catering, to something that 99% of the people in the Bay Area don't have the resources to ever experience, you know, or or perhaps would not even want to if they had the resources for it. Um, I think to say that if restaurant criticism and food writing in general has shifted in a direction where we are now talking more about the everyday kind of places um, that um, people go to, you know, whether it be like uh, the little pupusa stand out of someone's driveway, you know, down the street, or whether it be about, you know, kind of like the the little sandwich shop yeah. um, that's been there for 50 years. You know, if, if we're talking about those kinds of places right now, we're actually talking, I think, we're speaking to a lot more people um, than we were speaking to before, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so I, I think that's only a yeah. good thing in my point of view. This is part of our All You Can Eat series on Barrier Food Cultures with KQED food editor Luke Sai. Coming up, we'll be joined by Soleho. They just stepped down as San Francisco Chronicles food critic. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As part of our all-you-can-eat series on Bay Area food cultures, we're joined by KQED food editor Luke Sai. We want to bring in another guest. They are stepping down, just stepped down, as the San Francisco Chronicle's food critic. Welcome, Solejo. Hi, what's up? Uh, not much, not much, except you're leaving us uh, to be an opinion columnist, <laughs> um, which is great, which is great. We want to hear from uh, listeners as well. Tell us a review of Soleil's that has stuck with you. Or is there a restaurant you think deserves a review that hasn't gotten one? You can give us a call. The number is 866 
866. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Um, so, like, we talked about your time, your tenure as a critic with Luke. What do you think you, what, what impact do you think you made on the Bay Area food scene in your years as critic? Oh my gosh. Um, it's, it's so hard to evaluate just from my position because, you know, it's, it's hard to see, but I think I want to, I want to say, um, that it's been a positive impact. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) You know, it's, it's hard because it, it was only four years. Um, it was a really packed four years, I should say. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think we should count the pandemic years as double uh, least, the amount of time least, that they yeah. are on paper. So, <laughs> but um, I want I want to say I mean I really hope that my tenure as critic has been characterized by I don't know um, greater empathy for folks in the restaurant biz and really a better sense of the cultural context of restaurants, why we eat out, what we're looking for when we eat out, what we're told that we value um, when it comes to the things that restaurants and the dining world offer us and what we actually value. I hope that my coverage has sparked those questions and those, you know, those analyses in readers. You know, we were talking about fine dining uh, before the break and what should be done with it. And, you know, Luke was saying <laughs> that, you know, they were saying, you know, the vast majority of people in the Bay Area are not going to experience tasting menus at fine dining restaurants, at least, you know, more than a, a few times even in their lives. Um, but, you know, some of those same criticisms can be leveled against uh, art of different kinds. <laughs> you know, people aren't going to own own paintings and, and it can seem very rarefied. So how did you think about, you know, the material conditions underlying the production of the food in these restaurants versus like the food as, as art and chefs as, as artists? Well, you know, art requires patronage, unfortunately. You know, you had the Medicis <laughs> during the Renaissance in Italy, and now you have VCs funding fine dining restaurants in San Francisco. You know, not to to make too fine of an equivalence, but I do think that there is, you know, we still want to celebrate, whether that means going to Olive Garden for a birthday or really saving up for months to go to Cezanne or Bainu in San Francisco, right? So I think there is a place for these sort of rarefied experiences, you know? Um, but yes, increasingly, I think the fine dining has become a symbol for a lot of things that people are frustrated with in our economic system as places of exclusion and um, material I guess I should say the hoarding of, of mm-hmm. wealth, uh, which has gotten much worse during the pandemic as far as wealth inequality in this country. And it's, yeah, I think there is some frustration there. And I hear, I've heard a lot of that frustration from readers whenever we write about fine dining at the Chronicle. And so, yeah, there, I think we're reaching a sort of interesting tipping point in public sentiment towards these places and, I'm not really sure. I mean, you know, as long as we live within a system that 
correlates wealth with power. I don't think we're going to, we, the people are going to get rid of fine dining. Um, I think fine dining is sort of a symptom of the world that we live in. Um, we were having a couple problems with the phones, but they are back, it looks like. So we'd love to hear from you. Tell us a Solejo review that stuck with you. Or is there a restaurant out there that you think deserves a review that hasn't gotten one? Uh, the number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at KQED. Org. So I wanted to ask you about what seems to be this strange thing, and then we'll bring in Luke on this, which is that a lot of the chefs that I know personally just no longer run restaurants. Um, and it kind of feels like restaurants as a as a model. I mean, they're not we think of them as being something that's been around forever, but they're the restaurant as we have known it is actually not that old. Do you feel like we're evolving away from the traditional kind of sit-down restaurant as the model for what it is to like be a chef and cook food for people in this commercial context? <laughs> that's a good question. I think there's a really interesting general generational shift that's been happening, actually, as someone who was part of, I think, the generation of young cooks that entered the industry in the wake of um, Anthony Bourdain's first book. Um, gosh, what was it called? Kitchen Confidential. Uh-huh. You know, I think that brought a lot of young people into restaurants hoping for something, you know, that pirate life, that romance, that not celebrity necessarily, but just a place to be weird, you know? <laughs> um, and they they got older, you know? Mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain died, Um and I think that has sparked a lot of existential kind of wondering within that generation, um, coupled with not so much now, but you know, previously with the tech industry here, they were hiring chefs. They were trying to serve their workers like really great food at their cafeterias and offering these nine to fives for people who had never expected to be able to see their kids, you know, these chefs um, never expected to be home before sundown. And I think that has sparked a lot of, of just wondering, like restaurants can't give us that, you know, um, if Anthony Bourdain, the luckiest chef really in the world, um, wasn't happy, then, you know, why am I suffering like this? Hmm. And this, this is, I'm talking about people who have the choice. You know, a lot of people don't have that choice. Mm -hmm. Um, like the friends that you're talking about, they, obviously had the choice to leave restaurants. Um, And so the ones who stay, you know, they're the ones that deal with the conditions that really haven't gotten that much better, you know, um, considering even just, even in the nicest restaurant, even the one where they treat you like family or that they love you, you still have to work when other people get to play, you know, and there's something really lonely about that. Mm -hmm. Luke, what else is going on here? Because, I mean, one of the other things that I've heard is just the actual business of it. Like, it's not a very good business. Maybe it never has been, but because of a variety of factors, it's gotten even harder. Yeah, I think think that's definitely true. Um, 
I think, uh, you know, just from hearing what, what chefs have told me, um, you know, we, we know that restaurants always operated on these very thin margins. Um, and then you have something like the pandemic that hits and sort of like, you know, drops this bomb in the middle of, of, of it all. Um, and then you have, um, you know, what, what we've seen happening in the Bay area, which is, you know, just things have just gotten more and more expensive on every level. Um, even if we're just talking about the level of like the rent, um, that you have to pay, you know, from month to month. Um, and so you have, uh, chefs, um, who, if, if they have the choice, um, they're making these calculations, um, and then they're also looking and they also have personal lives, you know, and they, and they also want to have some sort of, um, balance, in their life. And I think for a lot of chefs that I've talked to who have made that transition to now where they're either, you know, working as corporate chefs or they are just doing a lot of consulting um, and occasional sort of pop-up events, um, you know, chefs who have made that transition have sort of um, made that calculation and said, you know, at least at this point in time, the way that things are at this moment this is just running a restaurant is not something that I can do and also check all these other boxes that I want to have um, in my life. And, and, and you can't blame them. And I, and I don't think it's because they don't love restaurants because I think a lot of the chefs that I have talked to who have made that choice actually love restaurants a lot. You know, mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. love the idea of hospitality and they love, um, sort of what Soleil was talking about, that camaraderie um, in the kitchen with with their team. Like, I think there is still a real pull to that. Um, but at what cost, you know, and and at what at what cost to your um, to, to your, you know, right. uh, rest of your personal life, um, what cost to your health, what cost to your finances, you know, kind of all mm -hmm. these things. And so, yeah, I don't blame anyone. Like, I, you know, like it's, I would never steer someone to enter that industry. You know, if um, I, I wouldn't advise them to do that, no more than I would advise them uh, to go into uh, food writing or restaurant criticism. Like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise them to do that either. Yeah, they can always fall back on general journalism. <laughs> eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, let's bring in uh, a caller. Let's bring in Al from Santa Rosa. Welcome, Al. Yeah, hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, I just wanted to jump in. I, I was interested in, the, in the, the discussion regarding fine dining versus kind of other dining. So I do agree. I think a lot of uh, fine dining restaurants get a lot of the attention from the food writers, but I wanted to put in a plug for the Mitote Food Park in Santa Rosa. We launched it during the pandemic. It's a cluster of like four or five food trucks that we have, and it's it's very affordable, family friendly, and I think you know people are really drawn to it. And we've got a nice space. We added some of the amenities of a fine dining place, like we have a mezcal cocktail bar and local taps on on uh, local brews on tap and nice restrooms, etc. But I, I do think these kind of establishments need more attention. I, I coordinated Sonoma County Restaurant Week in, in Sonoma County for seven years, and it was geared toward more the, the nicer fine dining restaurants, and it often overlooked, you know, the taquerias and the noodle bars and that sort of thing. So I thought, I think you're, it's a good topic for discussion. I appreciate you calling attention to it. Yeah. 
Cool. Hey, thank you so much, Al. That's uh, for those curious. It's uh, Mitote, so it's M I T O T E Food Park uh, up there. Um, hey, thanks a lot for that. You know, um, so like, what a time to really get rolling. We've kind of mentioned it a few times, but let's just like go straight into it. When the pandemic hits, did you know that? Just did you immediately process like, oh man, like the role of a food critic in this moment is needs to be entirely different well no at first i was like we're all gonna freaking die <laughs> that was my first thought right yeah. i was just like ultimate oh, no. stress like right, right. holy crap right yeah. um yeah well thankfully i'm okay uh lost a lot of people but um yeah the food criticism part was just um not even i didn't think about that to be honest, I was just thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we serve people? You know, like people are in crisis and how do we step up when we in the journalism world, we're also really freaked out and, you know, also at risk and also, you know, um, scared out of our minds. I think that's a part of the onset of the pandemic that I think is really important to remember is just, mm-hmm. you know, I think that is enough to shake anybody out of their stasis and stagnation. Just like, okay, when it really matters, like, what do you want to be doing and who do you want to be helping? Um, The food criticism part came later when we had a little bit more time to think, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's at, at the Chronicle, at least we were just full steam and just really working so hard trying to get ahead of the stories and, keeping people informed and helping them make the best decisions they could for, you know, their lives in the immediate. But weren't restaurants Um, really part of that story? I mean, for, for me, yeah, yeah. totally. Um, I was making, I was just calling people and they were talking to me about just like what they were going through and like what they were scared of um, people being restaurant owners and workers. And that was really important, you know, that birthed a lot of really great stories about, you know, what undocumented restaurant workers were going through because they weren't entitled to benefits, you know, from the state and they were scared um, to get, mm-hmm. you know, get tested mm-hmm. and get vaccines because, you know, it, it was risky for them. Um, and so that was a huge part of my concern. And mm-hmm. I thought a lot about just the the ethics of going out to eat and like people were trying to understand, you know, should I go? Should I not go? Um, how do I help restaurants? How do I keep them? How do, how do we keep them from disappearing in this thing that it seems like uniquely engineered to destroy them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it brought a lot of concern among the public for restaurants that I hadn't really seen before. And I think some would argue that it was a pretty short-lived concern, much like people's concern for uh, essential workers in general. Um, but I think it's one of those things that is going to stick with us mm-hmm. either, not maybe not so overtly, but at least um, has empowered a lot of restaurant workers to advocate for themselves. And I think that is really amazing and great. Yeah. So I want to talk with you after the break and with Luke about places you've loved and you discovered during your time. But one listener writes in to say, and I just want you to be able to like kind of take this one head on too. One listener writes in to say, 
One review that really stuck out for me was when you called Pete's new boba-derived tea cultural appropriation. Why is some fusion to be celebrated, for example, Korean tacos, while others are to be criticized? How do you make that judgment? (laughs) Oh, that is a question that is so... uh... Yeah. You've gotten this. You've gotten this before, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Feels familiar. Um, But yeah, in that case, the crux of the story was just that Pete's was serving what was kind of like boba, but like refusing to call it that and and just kind of conjuring this drink out of nowhere. And like, that was the issue, right? Um, And that's the thing is like, at least with Korean tacos, there's an acknowledgement, like there's Korean food here. There's Mexican food here. We are joining them together. Um, whereas with the pizza drink, it was just, okay, we just made it up. We're geniuses, you know? <laughs> uh, this is part of our All You Can Eat series on Bay Area food cultures. We are joined by Solejo. They are stepping down as the San Francisco Chronicle's food critic, though staying on as an opinion columnist with the Chronicle. We're also joined by KQED food editor Luke Sai. Uh, we are also taking your calls and comments. You know, maybe it's a review of Soleil's that's stuck with you. Maybe it's a restaurant you think should be reviewed. What do you actually want from a critic nowadays in the age of Yelp and um all the other profusion of digital information that's available about restaurants, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. Sarah writes in to say, Soleil, that um, her favorite view view of yours was the appropriately savage takedown of Lake Colonial. A um, couple people have also written in with places that should be reviewed. Rick writes, I love Estrellitas Papusas from the locations in the Tenderloin and Valencia to the pop-ups at the Civic Center and Alamany Farmers Markets. Wide variety and delicious. And Tita writes in to say, Kibatsu on Lower Hate. Head chef and owner Roy is so inventive and playful and indulgent. Uh, in his sushi creations. On top of the incredible omakase, his right-hand woman, Chanel, is a gem of a human and provides excellent service. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got KQED food editor Luke Sai. This is part of our All You Can Eat series on Bay Area food cultures. And we've got Solejo. They just stepped down as San Francisco Chronicle's food critic, turning 
their considerable gifts to being opinion columnist with the Chronicle. Um, so, like, Gregory writes in to say, does Ho have a list of top three restaurants and why? There's more to Greg's question, which we'll get to, but let's start there. Oh, God, that's an awful question. Oh, that's torture. Um, and then Luke is going to critique your your critiques. That's kind of the plan here. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> my top three restaurants. In, in like, okay. In the world or here? Here. Here here in the Bay Area. <sighs> okay. Okay. Um, Bread Belly. Bread a bakery belly. in okay. the Richmond district in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, Catonia, an Italian restaurant in Russian Hill. Mm. Um, and, oh gosh, number three. I would have to say number three is Reams. Ah, the, friend the of the show, Reem Seal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bakery hoe, so that's kind of what I'm into. Um, Luke, have you been to any of these three? I mean, you you probably had Reams before. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about any of those places? I'm not going to critique your (laughs) your choices, (laughs) Soleil, other than to say um, that, you know, I I haven't um, uh, been probably nearly as often as you, um, but everything that I've had at Breadbelly has been um, delicious. Um, from their sandwiches to their pastries. Um, and then Reams is also a, a spot that I go way back with as far as like mm-hmm. um, back when she started um, just selling from a farmer's market. Um, and it has been really cool uh, to see the way that that um, business has evolved, both in terms of um, just the, the delicious um, bread um, that's that's come in Um out of out of that kitchen, um, but also just the way that um, Reem herself has has um, really become one of the sort of outspoken people um, in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I I think those are great choices. Please, uh, Alexis, don't ask me to give my top three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Gregory's question goes in a different direction at this point, um, which I I like, and I think people find this very fun. Um, Soleil, how would they disguise themselves when going to restaurants? Did you do that book under your own name? Like, how did you kind of work out that subterfuge? Right. Well, unfortunately, my name is very unique (laughs) and noticeable. So I never used my own name and I would just go through a list of random names that I would make up. Um, my favorite one was Grace Lee because, I mean, who doesn't know a Grace Lee, right? Um, and I, I just couldn't, I, I like experimented with contacts for a while. I wear glasses. I've worn glasses since I was 11 and I just, it just didn't work for me. So I was like, you know what? Okay, whatever. I would like switch out the color of my glasses sometimes. Um, and I had illusions of dressing up in different ways, but I was like, you know what? This is tiring. And like often <laughs> today I'll be honest, I wear my velvet cape. Yeah. Yeah. And That's you know I what? Do. I wore velvet to restaurants sometimes. And <laughs> odds are like the most random for the most random reasons, a person or people at restaurants would not recognize me. So it, I realized it didn't really correlate with anything that I wore. 
um, to be honest. So, <laughs> um, let's bring in another car. Let's bring in uh, David in Mill Valley. Welcome. Hi there. Hey, David. Go ahead. Oh yeah, go ahead. You go. You wanted to uh, talk oh, about yeah. kind of well, restaurant workers as craftspeople. Yeah, just it's interesting. I'm a, a former waiter and worked in the back of the kitchen and have three chefs friends. So this conversation about kind of the foodie culture that kind of developed started in the 70s uh, kind of has evolved these days. And one of the things that it does is it attracts people from kind of non-traditional backgrounds to form that sense of community and be able to practice a trade, a craft, and an art. And I think as as critics of restaurants, we kind of have to see as how all those things come together upon the plate. But also we can think about all those individuals that come together and bring that plate to you. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of an interesting phenomenon that we've been able to experience during this period of time. And as rising costs come up out, maybe this is a, a, a period in time that isn't going to be as replicable mm. in the future. Yeah, yeah, David, that's a, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I in that has struck me as something that is really going on. That there's the structural changes underlying the economics of running a restaurant are kind of really changing what a restaurant even is um, or or can be. Um, so, like uh, bouncing off of uh, David's call, there's uh, a really interesting question from Susan who writes in to say, "I've long wondered about the difference between the restaurant business in the U.S. and Europe. Why are food and wine affordable and staff seemingly well paid in Europe versus here? Would love like resources to understand more about how the industry is structured differently and how the broader economy impacts the economics of running a restaurant." I mean, we'll start with you, Soleil, and then uh, Luke, if you want to fill in. Oh goodness, I think largely there's more of a social safety net in Europe, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of things spring from that, where restaurants aren't making up for, you know, I'm thinking specifically of San Francisco um, when I say this, and, you know, and, and just employers aren't the ones on the hook for, um, let's say, healthcare, for instance, and they don't have to bake those costs into, you know, pay and like benefits in that way. I have to imagine that that's why people have more disposable income and they're generally healthier, right? Um, And don't necessarily rely on tips to make up for um, lower wages as servers. I think that's a really important part of what's different about Mm -hmm. the two places. Mm -hmm. Luke, do you want to fill in some other things? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I was actually going to jump in on on the tipping part of it also, because I think that's a conversation that has happened so many times in the Bay Area where you've had this movement um, where people say, you know, like restaurants really need to just charge the true cost of what a meal is, you know, whatever that might be, and not um, sort of put it on uh, the customer uh, to sort of make up their own, make up for their own inability to pay uh, their workers uh, a living wage. And, and, like time and time again, we've seen whenever restaurants have tried to implement that, there's been such a big pushback against it, um, or restaurants um, have just quickly given up because you know they just say customers are not willing to accept this, and and there's there's, there's just so, certain cultural norms around that that is hard for one individual restaurant um, to sort of change mm-hmm. on their own. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think, you know, I think that's a big piece of it, you know, like cus- customers are, are, you know, like so pre- uh, budget conscious, which is understandable in this economy, you know? Um, and so, but what, so if they see one restaurant, they look at the menu and the prices are, you know, it's like every entree is 30, $40, you know, they sort of say like, Oh, you know, yeah. Nope, not we, for me. We, right. We, we can't do that. But then, you know, you see a restaurant where it's, uh, less expensive, but then you have all these, you know, you have, you have to tip and then there's all these additional fees and all these other things, um, the sort of hidden costs. And then you add, add it up and, you know, you, you're ending up paying more than that amount anyway. Um, so I do think that's a difference. And that's why a lot of Americans talk about, you know, traveling to Europe and traveling to Asia, um, and having, uh, just so much of a better experience with that part of it. Um, Mm you know, so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. There's some really interesting studies too. Sorry. But, um, and I've read about these where psychologically people are better able to accept a fragmented bill and fragmented costs as opposed to one lump sum, which is really interesting. Right. This is the, like buying an airline ticket right now (laughs) is also further proof. You know, you now pay for every, you pay for a seat. You pay to bring a carry-on bag on. I'm like, yeah. Um, Let's bring in uh, Belinda in Palo Alto. Welcome. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, So, first of all, forgive me. I have COVID, so I may be a little bit weary sounding. Oh, no. Hope you feel Um, better. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, just going along with this idea of maybe a fragmented bill or um, very expensive um, fine dining experiences. What I think would be interesting in food journalism, whether it's on um, in newspapers or on social media platforms, is to share information about how people can go and share what they eat at some of these spots. Um, so recently, a friend and I went to two places in Palo Alto, Barzola, and another place called uh, um, Esther's, no, sorry, Ethel's Fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally, you know, I, I work in the retail sector myself. I don't do not earn enough to go to such places. But um, my curiosity and my friend's curiosity, you know, we, we want to try some things. So mm-hmm. our approach is to go very early. So before the regular dinner service and, you know, try and sit in a place that, you know, we, we kind of basically say, is it all right if we share a few things? And I think this is a really fun way um, to be able to experience something very different, experience the art of some of the chef creators, but still, you know, basically not not your spend your entire paycheck. Yeah. Go away. But in addition to that, I just wanted to share um, another thing that I think would be great uh, in food journalism is because of the disappearance of so many favorite restaurants, longstanding restaurants, um, for those that are known to be going to disappear, it would be great to have, you know, some beautiful articles about what these places represented for the community. For instance, down this way, Frankie, Johnny and Luigi's left. Um, the fish market is about to leave because all these spots are going to be developed into, yeah. well, so many a lot of it is to do with housing. Yeah. So, yeah. Linda, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I hope you feel better. COVID is tough to uh, 
to battle and uh hope you're hope you're on your way um i wanted to uh say you know julia writes in I remember Soleil's critique of the French Laundry super well, as it's a restaurant with so much mysticism and allure and intrigue. Specifically, I remember them describing the everything bagel seasoning on one of the amuse-bouche as trite and expected. (laughs) I remember them saying, even though it was one small dish, it made a difference because the element of surprise is a lot of what you're paying for. And now each time I indulge in a tasting menu, which isn't too frequently, I think about whether the specific dish is surprising to me. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, Soleil, I, you know, this is one of the small ways, right, maybe in which you might have changed people's perspectives about, you know, this kind of experience? Yeah. Um, I think one of the really special things about being a restaurant critic and one of the really key functions is that we aren't well, not we anymore, um, but <laughs> restaurant critics aren't necessarily spending their own money, you know, so they get the chance to go to a place that is really hyped up or really expensive several times and actually have a an ideal situation, at least um, a sober evaluation of what a person should expect from this place, you know, because I think when you are saving up and you have one chance in your life to go to, you know, X place you you have a lot of really different you have a different experience um i think there's a little bit of well you get what you get and you're there for the glamour of it or whatever and um you maybe would be less uh critical right because you wouldn't really know what you're supposed to be ex- experiencing so i think yeah. like that was one of the refreshing things about writing about fine dining restaurants is just okay let's hold them to a standard. Like, what is the standard? Is it just that you're giving me expensive things or, you know, what are we paying for? Mm, I love that. Alexis, um, I, I was hoping to jump in also because I see that we're getting close to the end of the hour. And I just wanted to make sure that we didn't end this hour having Soleil on without properly giving them their flowers um, <laughs> for, just do- <laughs> for just doing an amazing job um, these four years. I mean, I think um, I don't know. I think just one of the callers shouted out the Le Colonial review um, that you wrote, which I know you probably also took a lot of flack for, <laughs> you know, from from the general public. Um, but I just thought it so embodied, you know, like I, I just don't think enough has been said just about how um, great uh, you were and will continue to be just as a writer and as a thinker you know i mean that that review uh for for those who didn't read it um basically took on this issue of like what does it mean that the city of san francisco still embraces this restaurant that's essentially like a love letter to french colonialism in vietnam um and it was like so many things you know it was like unsparing in its assessment of the food um but it was so inspiring to me because it was like you know, you you were talking about colonial nostalgia, you know, in a restaurant review. Um, you had a conversation with the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Viet Tan Nguyen in the context of a restaurant review. And it was just so inspiring me, to me to sort of take this format that I think a lot of people might have felt was getting stale over the years um, and just do something new, both in terms of the subject matter um as well as like the format of it you know like i remember you were doing like wild stuff like like you wrote like one restaurant review like 
in the style of like a hard boiled detective novel, you know, like you're just doing like all this great stuff. And so I just want to, you know, I know you're not like dying, like it's not an obituary, you know, you like, luckily we're still going to have you around. Um, but I just want to say, um, great job for, for, and, and just that it's, it's been, um, challenging and inspiring for me as someone who is also writing about food in this, in this, um, Bay area. Thank so you. like before oh, you can respond, wow. well, you have to pile on a little love from no. some more Soleil fans. Jed writes in to say, when I heard Soleil was leaving the Chronicle as food critic, I was like, already? So I was greatly relieved that they'll bill you working there still, sharing their insights and sometimes no BS sense of humor. And Sarah tweets, for me, it's host perspective, personality, and moxie over one particular review. Also, when they announced on Twitter their pronouns, love reading all they have to say. Okay, now, now, now you can say something. <laughs> I mean, you said I'm not dying, but I am dying on the inside hearing all of this. Oh my god, I can't. What are you going to write about? Place. What are you going to write about, Soleil? Oh, everything, and which is very overwhelming to me, um, just to have the whole world open up in this way. So, I mean, really, I'm so, I was so inspired by. I think it's weird to say I was inspired by the time of COVID and like the long the lockdowns and just the big questions we had about what it means to be human and what it means to care about each other. And I hope to kind of continue that work in the opinion section. Yeah. This has been part of our All You Can Eat series on Bay Area food cultures. We have been joined by KQED food editor Luke Sai, who just beautifully celebrated our other guest, Soleil Ho, who has just stepped down as the San Francisco Chronicles food critic. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thank you so much, Alexis. And thank you so much, Soleil, for, for all the work and for coming on the show. And you've got to come on some more now that you're an opinion <laughs> columnist, too. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for your calls and comments. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.